A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Claire Hubble, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we reflect on breaking news the Russian Defence Ministry claims it has captured the town of Solidar in what would be the first breakthrough in months. Plus, we interview British volunteer Jack Ross, founder of the charity Vans Without Borders, who has been delivering aid to isolated areas in Ukraine. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 13th of January, day 324. And to discuss the most recent events in Ukraine and around the world, I'm joined by our assistant comment editor, Francis Dernley. I started by asking Francis for the latest news from the front lines, beginning with the news from Solidar. Yes, well, zooming out, we've heard in the last hour that Russia have captured the town of Solodar in what would be the first breakthrough on the battlefield for them in six months. Now, I say that emphasising that this is from their defence ministry. They are saying that Russian forces have captured the town, and I'll read the quote in full. The capture of Solodar was made possible by the constant bombardment of the enemy by assault and army aviation, missile forces and artillery of a grouping of Russian forces. Now, also important to emphasise that Ukraine are still denying this. They've said that uh, the there is still continued pockets of fighting uh, going on, and so not the whole of the town has been taken by the Russians. Also, both sides in these claims, they've not been able to be independently verified by Reuters or ourselves or others. So, I imagine there'll be more information by the time that this episode is broadcast, but at the time of this, this is breaking news. So um, not unexpected. Of course, Dom Nichols and I have been talking about this for the last couple of days, but nonetheless, this does feel like a moment, and it seems likely that most of the town is under Russian occupation. So I think just a moment to reflect on the significance of this. As I say, it would be the first noteworthy victory for Russia since June Tactically, as I discussed at length with Dom last week and this week, the significance of Solidar is questionable. It may be an important stepping stone for taking Bakhmut, 
But the question is, how important is Bakhmut beyond the symbolic? If the Russians were to take Bakhmut, it's not as if they'd have an easy route deeper into Ukrainian territory. There's an enormous amount of question marks around that. So even if the significance is contested, uh, I think the the broader picture of this is is one that is still very questionable about this the the importance of the value of this this particular part of of Ukraine. But nonetheless, I think you have to recognize that this does mark something of a setback for Ukraine. It will inevitably make some countries jumpy about the prospects of a short-term Ukrainian victory. But as we said yesterday, there's another way of thinking about this, which is that it could be a Pyrrhic victory for the Russians on two fronts. Pyrrhic in the sense that success has come at a tremendous cost in lives and resources. It's also caused a spat at the very top of Russian military command. Indeed, Sorovkin has been removed and there's been uh, all sorts of ramifications with the relationship between the MOD and the Wagner group. So again, that's a weighty cost when you're fighting uh, a war of this nature. But not only that, it, this could trigger for some countries not to recoil from supporting from Ukraine, but quite the opposite. They may now think that we need to send more high-tech weaponry as an urgency, as a priority. And it may well be that the tanks that we've been talking now about at length are sped up in terms of the deliveries, which, as we spoke about yesterday, are starting to feel more of an inevitability. Now, in that vein, some quite interesting remarks I also wanted to talk about from Ukraine's defense minister, Reznikov, who has said that in his mind, Ukraine has effectively become a NATO member already, despite the military alliance's reluctance to get embroiled in the wider conflict with Russia. So he said, there is concern about the next level of escalation for me, but this is some kind of protocol. He went on, Ukraine as a country and the armed forces of Ukraine became a member of NATO, de facto, not de jure in law because we have weaponry and the understanding of how to use it. Now, this is a reality that is echoed by many senior analysts, including Henry Kissinger, it has to be said. Certainly, it's becoming increasingly unlikely that Ukraine would be left to fight alone at any stage now by the West, by NATO, something that was far from certain when the war began. And as we're seeing, the level of commitment from the West is increasing, conversations we're having now about the nature of support are far, far greater than conversations that were happening six months ago. So I do think that there are many who would align with this view that yes, okay, Ukraine are not in NATO, but there is enough now support behind Ukraine from the West. And there is enough of a moral imperative there that is understood by Western leaders to not be in a position where it would be possible to abandon Ukraine to Russia. Now, of course, there are still an enormous amount of caveats. And if this war were to change in certain other directions, then I do still have concerns, as regular listeners will know, about the direct potential direction of travel and the nature of certain countries' support for Ukraine. But nonetheless, I do think that's an important point to underline. One final thing uh, on the, in the military space, just returning to this question of tanks, because we followed it so much in the last 48 hours or so. Finland have also clarified their position, saying that they would donate a small number of German-made Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine if a wider group of European nations also decided to do so. Now, Finland, of course, have applied for NATO membership and it's looking more or less you know, dead set that that's going to take place. It just you know takes time for all of these things to be ironed out. 
But they have said, as I say, and I'll read the quote, if tanks were sent, Finland's offering could not be numerous, but would come. And as I say, that is suggestive of just what a lot of countries are saying at the moment, whether that be Germany, whether that be France, Britain to an extent, are all saying the same thing. And as Dom said yesterday, that's either indicative of the state of plays as things stand, that countries are lined up and waiting for one country to move first, or it's suggestive that actually there is a collective approach that is being agreed here, whether that be about timings, whether it be about the nature of the weapons, whether that be about the way to portray that to the world and particularly to Russia, all sorts of question marks about what's happening. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's just hesitancy. There could be more going on here and more higher level conversations. So as I say, I just wanted to give a little bit of an update on that as well. Not masses going on in diplomatic space, so I'll, I'll draw um, to, a, to a close shortly. But there was just one story that I thought was interesting, which is that off Italy have offered the use of their logistics infrastructure, including the Adriatic seaports of Venice and Trieste, for Ukraine's exports. Now, that's including to, according to the industry minister, Adolfo Erzo, who said in an interview uh, this morning that he'd met with President Zelensky and other Ukrainian officials on Thursdays to discuss this. So, as I say, to condense that, Italy is proposing to facilitate Ukrainian exports through its Adriatic seaports. And I mentioned this only to underline, again, the noteworthy Italian support for Ukraine, which I touched on yesterday, which was not what some people expected. But also, there's a sort of historical irony here. Northern Italy and Western Ukraine were formerly under the Habsburg Empire. And it's just another curious example of how this war is both an engine of history. It's tearing apart old identities, but it's also forging new ones. But on top of that, it's also resurrecting some old and long forgotten alliances and ideals. And I just thought that this is the classic example of that. Um, and uh, just an interesting one, I thought, on which to end. So thank you very much for, for listening to that. And um, over to our, to our guest. Next, we spoke to Jack Ross, founder of the charity Fans Without Borders. After the invasion of Ukraine in February 2022, Jack and his team of fellow volunteers independently began delivering aid to remote areas and supporting civilian evacuation. Here, he reflects on his, at times harrowing, at times heartwarming, experiences in Ukraine and the challenges of delivering humanitarian support in a war zone. Thank you, Francis and Claire, for having me on the show. So my name's Jack Ross. I'm the founder of Vans Without Borders. I'm 24 years old. And since April last year, we've operated in-country, bringing humanitarian aid um, to communities in need across Ukraine. So we started off largely in the west of Ukraine as the Russians were pushed back, venturing into Kharkiv in mid-April. And since June, July uh, in 2022, we've really targeted the hotspots going into Donetsk Oblast, going down to Kherson, going all over really where the larger charities don't go to. So we prioritise reaching villages which are hard to reach to. We have four by fours now in our fleet and we we go and help the people who literally have nothing. So the Russians came in in a lot of cases and destroyed what little food and shelter these people had. So we've done what we can to try and ease the burden of war on them by delivering them a variety of aid from food to blankets to building supplies, really everything and anything that's needed in Ukraine. And how did you start Fans Without Borders? You mentioned you are the founder. What were you doing before this and what led you to this line of work? So I run a social media company. Um, So I was working in social media, news related stuff as well. 
And I was seeing all the stories and well, really the horror stories coming out of Ukraine and just noticed there was very little support going to the Ukrainian people. At the time, a lot of their population had fled. The West was being quite weak initially with the support to Ukraine. And I thought, well, someone's got to do something. Um, so I went out with a friend and bought a transit minibus, filled it up with aid. And then a family friend of mine called John Bream, who's a ex-paratrooper, agreed to come out with me. We advertised online looking for people and I had 20 applicants initially come forward say yeah we'll come out with you that whittled down to one so it was a three-man team who headed over to ukraine with a van full of aid and then it really just continued from there we initially went in not knowing what to expect at all thinking we'd just be there for a week dropping off the aid and then pulling back we were told not to go to kiev so we pretty much drove directly to kiev um, because we thought that's where the aids needed and we were some of the first humanitarian efforts into Butcher and Irpin so we were in Butcher and Irpin less than a week after it was liberated from the Russians and were delivering aid while they were still dealing with um, the remnants of the Russian army there in um, April 2022 um, you know Butcher and Irpin was really my first experience of a war zone so I don't come from a military background and you know it was very harrowing we spoke to some of the residents there and I think what's been been reported is only really the tip of the iceberg we spoke to one old lady they called them babushkas over there which means grandmother and she was telling us how the two youngest men in the village when the russians had occupied them they russians had killed these two young men over three days with hammers so it was like a medieval torture style execution we were told by a priest who um who helped us out over there that actually the prostitutes in Butch and Irpin had ventured into Russian lines at night and would offer their services for free because the Rus- uh, to try and prevent the Russian soldiers from raping them because it was so rife at the time. And it's, it just showed us how evil the Russian war machine is. And again, the Russians are fielding a lot of illiterate troops, people from rural communities who who have, I'd say, very very little education, very rural-style upbringing. And when they came to Butch and Irpin, uh, the very poor as well, when they came to Butcher and Irpin, they looted things like fridges, freezers, toilets. And we were told one individual was actually, or family, was executed because they had Nutella. And Nutella was seen as a um, a luxury in Russia. And pe- the troops from these impoverished backgrounds in Russia couldn't understand how people who lived in similar style housing to them could afford luxuries like Nutella. So they took out their anger, their jealousy on the local people. You've shared some quite shocking stories there with us, Jack. I'm wondering what your expectations were before you first journeyed to Ukraine versus the reality. So when we announced that we were heading over to Ukraine, everyone thought I was mad, uh, including my family and my friends. I had two friends try and stage an intervention uh, with me to stop me going. And funnily enough, they'd actually invited me to go on holiday with them to Ukraine a couple of years beforehand. But I'd said no, because it's, it's still a bit of a war zone. I was like, oh, I'm a bit, bit scared actually to go over there. Uh, but ironically, um, they tried to talk me out of it when I said, actually, no, I'm going over to help now. In terms of what I was expecting, we didn't know because a war like this has not really been fought in our lifetime, or certainly not in my lifetime. And we see a lot of what happens in Afghanistan and Syria. And again, there's very hostile receptions for a lot of aid workers or soldiers. And in Ukraine, I guess one of our main concerns when we were going in was being accused of espionage. You know, three Brits turning up randomly with a transit van. We could be people who are genuinely there to help, which we are. Or they could think, no, you might be Russian saboteurs or spies. And it was at the time we were getting fed information from Ukraine where they were really clamping down on saboteurs, particularly around checkpoints and everything. So I'd say that was probably my biggest concern. It wasn't so much the Russians, it was the Ukrainians thinking I was a spy and um, and trying to <laughs> imprison me. And in those first few visits, what kind of aid did you come with? And was that 
different to what the people actually needed. So I think one of the more helpful elements of our work is that everything in Ukraine is needed. So it doesn't really matter what people donate. There is someone who needs it in country. Obviously, in terms of clothing or food items, things have to be sealed. They have to be in a new or good condition. Otherwise, it is completely unsuitable to take over. But we initially went over... um, with 500 kilograms of aid. So only a small amount in comparison to what we bring over now. But we we brought over tinned food, we brought over hygiene products. And I remember painstakingly counting, because we weren't sure what to expect at customs. So I had to count out individual tea bags, individual tampons, individual coffee sachets, which took absolutely ages. And it was a bit frustrating. Um, it's made life a little bit easier since then. But at the French border, they didn't even look in our van. They just waved us through. And then at the Ukrainian border, they weren't interested in itineraries and just had a look themselves. So it was um, it was a learning experience there. But certainly we found everything we took over was needed. So when we went into Butchernerp in the shop back in April 2022, the shops weren't open. The only people who remained, I can only describe it as like a almost like a zombie apocalypse film where people were living in these tent sort of mini towns, um, not in buildings because they're worried about the buildings being blown up or they had already been blown up and they're outside with fires, cooking on open fires because they had no power or running water. So um, they were very receptive of everything. And then when in country, we've made a big effort to try and limit how much food we bring over from the UK and try and buy as much food as we can in country to try and support their economy because there's a massive price inflation of um, food in Ukraine at the moment and even you walk into some supermarkets and the fruit and the vegetables are rotting because the locals don't have the money to actually go and buy them. It's so interesting to hear you talk about these challenges faced that we wouldn't usually actually think about such as the uh, inflation faced by those able to access shops. I'm wondering are there any other things that you don't see reported that you've encountered problems faced by the Ukrainian people today? So I was last in Ukraine in uh, late November, early before heading back. And one of the big things, which I don't think has been widespread reported on, is it's been reported a little bit, but just the effects of the damage of having no electricity. So in November, the Russians targeted the Ukrainian national grid and they severely damaged a lot of the um, electric power stations in Ukraine, which caused massive problems. Because when you think no electricity... um, from, say, a, a British perspective, you think, oh, it just means I can't charge my phone or I can't I don't know, uh, use my computer. But in reality, when, you, when you're in there, no electricity means no running water. Toilets don't flush. And that's a big problem with hygiene, especially a lot of Ukrainian families, particularly in more rural areas. There might be eight or nine people living in a house with one toilet. And obviously, if it doesn't flush for 48 hours, that's a big problem. Um, the other element as well is illness. We had to cut our journey short slightly at the end of December, uh, sorry, at the end of November because our team got ill. We picked up, I think everyone got it in the UK as well, some sort of strep A COVID sickness combo, which was horrific. And again, another factor of no electricity is ATMs don't work. And we had to try and scramble together what money we could. We had a bit of English money and we had to locate someone because none of the um, Bureau of Exchanges works. So we had to find a dodgy bloke who was um, exchanging money gave him for a massive markup, pounds for um, Ukrainian Grivna, pulled that together to buy Lemsip, bought the Lemsip and then had no means to um, heat it. We really struggled because when the power goes, you can't put fuel in your car. And we got stuck in the south of Ukraine for a couple of days while we tried to figure that one out. And there's no car payment. So even if um, they have got a generator to make the pumps work, the um, the card machine can't hook up to the Wi-Fi network because there's no Wi-Fi because there's no electricity. And um, you can't can't pay by card for diesel. Um, the other big factor as well, which I don't think I've seen anyone report, is with the electricity going down, it also means there's no phone reception. 
and it's hard enough living in a war zone not knowing if your family's okay whether your area is being bombed not getting news updates when when you've got the signal but when you have literally no signal no way to contact the outside world i imagine and it was for us it's a very lonely experience because no one's coming to help you um no one can, no will, will even potentially know that there's a problem in your area and there's just massive implications of the ukrainians not having power at the moment and it's a it is a terrorist move by russia because russia is not winning the um the conflict at the moment they're being driven back but their tactic instead of pushing back against the soldiers is to engage in a total war against the ukrainian people with the idea that if the ukrainian people suffer enough they'll be more susceptible to surrendering or accepting an agreement they don't want to accept and so in my opinion the russians are doing everything they can to make life as hard as possible for the ordinary people of ukraine mm, i'd like to bring in francis now who i'm sure has plenty of questions for you jack so francis please take us away I do, Claire. Wow, Jack, just a fascinating story. I want to start at the beginning, if I may, and just what was it specifically that triggered you to do this? I know Claire asked a similar question, but a lot of people have been appalled by what's happening in Ukraine, but they don't then jump in a van and drive straight to the front line to help civilians. Was there a particular story? Was there a personal connection that you have to Ukraine in some way that inspired you to act in this way? So I think um, it, it's a tough one because I get <laughs> get asked this a lot. But for me, I think it, the Ukraine situation is hard to ignore. I think we ignore a lot of inequality and atrocities across the world just because of distance. And places like, say I wanted to do this in Syria, Afghanistan, maybe in South America, it's just it's not the same. You haven't got the same fallbacks that you have with Ukraine. Because wherever we are in Ukraine, if it goes wrong, we're no more than, say, a 12-hour drive from a border where we can cross into a safe country. So it was really a unique opportunity to go and help people in genuine need while still have the safety net there in case we need to pull out ourselves. I also think a large drive for me is, as I said, I'm 24 years old, I was looking to join the army beforehand as well because I'm very keen to help people and I've been a big believer that people my age, our generation, all throughout history, uh, you look at World War One, World War Two, Falklands, it was young people going in and fighting for freedom and democracy and helping and trying to help the world and I really saw it as my duty to go and do something with my life to go over there and make a difference and I had the skills I've got the resources and the team to go and really do that so it was more a case of why not what's what's stopping you from going over there. Thank you and and in that vein what are your future plans for the charity work that you're doing and and what would you do if you had more resource available I mean you're very a very small charity at the moment but what would you like to do more of if you had the capacity to do so? So the big thing we want to start moving into is now a lot of the roads have reopened in the west of Ukraine is move heavy goods vehicles from the UK or Europe into Ukraine with aid. So currently we move with vans and the vans can take between one to two tonnes worth of aid, but it costs about £500, £600 to get to Kiev in fuel and it costs the same coming back. So you're spending £1,200 um, moving to two tonnes of aid maximum. We're looking now to try and either rent HGV lorries or um, use um, delivery services to move this stuff to Poland. And then it's only a short drive over the border ferrying stuff. And so the aim is to try and up our aid massively and bring in things people really need, such as warm clothing. Um, And then when we start getting more towards summer, it will be wet wipes, which people can use as showers, sort of a crude form of shower, soap, toothpaste, toothbrushes, really everything and anything which people need to survive. And as I said, if we can start doing that in a large capacity, that will make life well, make what we're doing a lot more effective and really ramp up our efforts. 
So you're already planning very much long term. You've been seeing, Jack, this war now on the day-to-day reality. And I just wonder what you think is going to happen. What kind of timescale do you see this war lasting in? So when I first crossed in April 2022, the Ukrainian fortifications were right up to the, it was the Slovakian border I crossed. And so within about a mile of driving into Ukraine, there were checkpoints. Then every mile from there, there's checkpoints and armed guards. The Ukrainians are very driven people and they're prepared to fight to the last inch of their country. They're not willing to give anything up. So I don't think Russia is going to be successful in bullying them into a surrender or a compromise. In terms of when this will end, the Ukrainians are optimistic. Every time I go in, they say, oh, it'll be over in a few months. It's very much that World War One mentality, was, it'll all be over by Christmas. But unfortunately, I don't think that's going to be the case. I think this is going to be one of those conflicts which might never be resolved or drag on for years and years and years. I think the Ukrainians have a very good chance of pushing the Russians back. But as we're seeing now, the Russians are starting to dig in in the areas they've taken. And it's got, the Ukrainians need different support, I think, from the West if they are going to be successful in driving them back. Because currently they have a lot of defensive equipment, which is fantastic, but not so useful when you're trying to attack positions. So, yeah, in terms of when it's going to end, I, I don't know. I just think, really, it's, it's not going to get better. It's only going to get worse. Yes, and I think that would echo some of our analysis on here, at least in the short term, that things are going to get worse before there is some light at the end of the tunnel. Indeed, I'll have a few updates on the tank side of things and the high-tech weaponry after our interview with you. Just moving into a slightly different territory, just wondered if you could talk a little bit more about the Ukrainian reaction to uh, your work. I mean, as you say, you were a bit concerned that they might think that you were a spy, but I imagine that when they found out your story and the reason that you were there and your fellow volunteers, that it was quite a different reaction. So if you could just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so when we first crossed, um, it was very interesting. Um, so it took us about nine hours to go through the Slovakian and then the Ukrainian border. Um, on the Ukrainian side, we, we didn't speak Ukrainian or Russian. They didn't really speak English because it was quite a remote one in Slovakia. We crossed as we were planning to go to Uzgorod to help some people there, which is on the Slovakian border. Um, it's... It was interesting because when I walked in and started speaking to one of the customs officials, she slammed her shutter down on me because she didn't understand English. And I thought, oh, no, this is it. I'm getting arrested. But then luckily one of her colleagues came out and in broken English, he kind of um, explained that it was quite late because it was about 3 a.m. at the time and she was just tired, which was fine. But then he started grilling me a lot about the UK and he started asking me about football teams in the UK, again, in very broken English. And um, I'm, I'm not a football guy. I come from a rugby family. And so with me being able to well failing to um answer a lot of his questions he grew more and more suspicious until he said that he supported Chelsea and I kind of wrapped up the conversation with well it was owned by a Russian oligarch at the time and he was like oh, okay we get to processing your papers now going in again we weren't sure what to what to expect at all but we've been overwhelmed with people's generosity so we've got friends in Ukraine I, ca- I can't name anyone obviously for um safety safety reasons but um people who put us up in their homes and so we can save on accommodation costs people who will tell us who's in need over there and it really is that community effort where people see we're doing a great thing and we've even been thanked by soldiers at the front who said a lot of young people in ukraine either fled or um, aren't helping the war effort and they can't believe that people from britain have come over to to help and they're really touched by us being there certainly as well while while we do hear some horror stories and we've seen some pretty horrible stuff as well a lot of our work is very positive so our aim is to try and provide a bit of emotional support for people as well as to try and brighten up their days with the aid because obviously what we're doing is a is a nice thing it's turning up in often some very um, destroyed areas or damaged areas but giving people supplies and so we have a chat with them give them chocolate sweets as well as what 
what um, the usual essential aid we give people, and it's to try and try and boost morale as well. That's why we do a lot with the um, Telegraph and our video interviews to try and boost morale across the board and um, show the reality of life on the ground for the Ukrainian people. That was going to be my next question, actually, which is um, you've obviously been filming videos for us now for for many months on your work there. Some brilliant videos called Life on the Front Line, which I'd really recommend that people check out. And we'll we'll be sure to add a link in the show notes of this episode as well. Just wanted to hear your experience of of doing that, that blogging and perhaps give a sense of how much changed or didn't change over the period of time in which you were recording those videos with us. So, yeah, a a lot changed. When we first um, went to Ukraine, it was really a ghost town. The only people we saw were were, um, soldiers, really, or people scrambling. It was at the time where they'd just given out (laughs) all the AK-47s to everyone. So what civilians we did see were heavily armed and evacuating from the area. And there wasn't much traffic going in as there was a lot of traffic coming out um, for obvious reasons. Um, I think at first the Ukrainian defense, while very motivated, was a little bit ramshackle. So in Kiev, they were using old farm machinery to um, create makeshift checkpoints and uniforms were a bit mismatched. Um, There was certainly more of a militia feeling as well. So when we started, when we were driving to Kharkiv and doing some more work in the east, um, when we'd have to pull in for fuel, you kind of, it it was almost like, I describe it as being back in a medieval time. So you'd kind of have to turn up at the gates of a town, state your cases why you want an entry to the town, which was we need to rest, get some food, um, pick up some fuel, and then you'd be granted access by um, militia and they pull like trees out the way so you could drive in. Whereas now it's become a lot more streamlined, um, where before a lot of um, locals kind of set up private militias to defend their areas. Now they've been replaced with um, uh, Ukrainian soldiers and there's a lot more accountability. Um, the fortifications are a lot better as well. Um, and it's quite interesting too because we drive in a lot and we see some of the old fortifications where they've been, they constantly move them to, um, uh, so obviously there's the problem with saboteurs and people looking to destroy checkpoints. And the fortifications we passed um, and the checkpoints we passed back in April, almost a year ago now, they're covered in weeds and trees and they've got brand new ones with much better equipment close by. And so it's 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 good to see how it's changed. In terms of life on the ground, I said when we initially when it was a ghost town, there wasn't really any civilians bar who had remained in pretty destitute conditions. Life over the summer improved. Lots of people came back to Ukraine. Kiev was jam-packed and it is still pretty jam-packed now. It's almost impossible to move at rush hour. Life's back to normal. Bars are open. And when we're in Dnipro, people have kind of become accustomed to the war. So we were sitting in a bar in Dnipro and the bomb sirens went off. And all the bar we were in did was just turn the music up. So people have, it's almost become a nuisance to a lot of people. I am interested to see how, what life's like now, because it started getting pretty dire again. Because we left because we got got a bit ill and obviously didn't want to pass that on to people and pull back a few days earlier back to the UK. But as we were going, we started noticing with the lack of electricity, people were out in the streets again having fires. And we were seeing people return to almost like tent-like structures again outside their buildings. I, I would be you know very keen to update you when i'm back i leave next time i leave on sunday i'm early february and it would be great to update you guys as to what what life's like there now because it's it's i imagine it's going to be a ghost town again we'd like that very much just a couple more questions from me if i may i just wonder if you could tell me a little bit more about your fellow volunteers what the crew that you that you share i imagine a lot of time on the road with and what their motivations were for joining so yeah there's about 30 of us who work with the team on and off um and we brought over some fantastic people. We have a lot of interest from British veterans. So I'd say the bulk of our volunteers are veterans. And I, I like working with veterans because, uh, and they're 
they're very motivated people and they're good at coping in a war zone. We've also taken um, civilians over and they've been, or I guess like me, over and they've been fantastic as well. Like one of my friends from school, Henry, he's an engineer at... Um, Southwest Trains or Southern Trains, I think they're called now. Hopefully not, not on strike at the moment. But um, he's been fantastic going out and repairing vehicles. And it's it's really brought out the best in humanity. I th- You know, I think it, just seeing the immense effort and sacrifices people give to come over. Like, none of us get paid for doing what we do. A lot of us self-fund as well to go over there. And and it's, it's very touching to see people. And some people... Um, Again, I don't want to give out too much personal information about individuals, but they put themselves in a bit of a tricky financial situation in the UK by coming out when you're taking a month off work. Not many people can afford to do that. Um, And it's 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 very touching, as I said, to see the sacrifice from the British people and the Ukrainians really appreciate that as well. They can see what people give up to come and help. And even again in the UK, we work with a variety of different groups and charities who collect aid. And some of the items are so generous. People are donating brand new um, designer clothes, something you could get quite a lot of money for if you sold it. And we're able to to take them over and give them to people really in need and to people who probably never owned a piece of designer clothing or a good coat before. And it's, um, as I said, it's, it's incredibly touching. One more from me, Jack. Just on the back of your last answer, I was wondering if you could speak a bit more about the age ranges and backgrounds professionally of your fellow volunteers. I know that in one of the videos I watched, there was a 75-year-old volunteer. So what can you tell us about kind of the backgrounds of your crew? So, yeah, I've I've always been of the belief that if people um, have a will to go over to Ukraine and want to help, I will help them do it because I think everyone wants a chance to do something positive um, with their life. Everyone wants the chance to have an adventure. Everyone wants a chance to give back. So the youngest guy we took out was a guy called Elijah. He was 18 years old and he's a mechanic and he was fantastic. Got us out of a few jams as well. Um, Ukrainian roads, if you watch the videos you see, are not great at all. Riddled with potholes, made worse by the war. And so vehicles really do take a beating. So you do need a mechanic on your team in case you blow a tyre or... Um, or have similar issues. And then Paul, Paul was a 75-year-old you mentioned. He's born in Britain but lived in America. And I think he was just keen to, to go and do something, and he was fantastic as well. So we do vet a lot of the people we bring out, make sure everyone's capable, and we have minimum um, fitness requirements for coming over because you have to be able to, to run if it gets nasty. And so, yeah, I so said we've got a real cross-section. Um, there's a real balance as well between people my age and people a little bit older as well. And I guess that's been, you know, a great experience as well. And we really do have a sense of camaraderie. We all look after each other. And um, a lot of people use their own vehicles too, which is nice because they're really putting, you know, their business on the line by using vehicles they might use. Like we had one chap who's a plumber and that kind of thing. So it's um, it, it's great just to have a great cross-section of people come out and from all different backgrounds too because you don't know... Um, who you need until you're out there so Fenton um, my number two he's fantastic as well he's 23 years old he saw one of our videos online then came out and joined us and he's an ambulance driver and he's been essential in um, actually treating people so not not advanced treatments because obviously people should try and get to a hospital but as he's has it has his first aid training he's able to do things like clean out burn wounds and um, deal with cuts he helped one guy in Kharkiv one of our translators um, a local guy and he came to us after he just pulled um, a child out of the rubble and had sliced all his hand up. All the hospitals were closed and he didn't have any bandages, so he's just walking around with this massive wound, which really needed stitching. Fenton put some butterfly stitches on it and wrapped it up, and 
obviously he's got a scar, but the hand's pretty much as good as new now. And so the skills people have, you don't really know you'll need them till you're over there because we do a lot in terms of treating the refugees and vulnerable people who come and receive our aid just because there aren't the usual services available. Even things like we bring a lot of crutches over to Ukraine because you go to some of these areas and you see these poor little old ladies and old men bent over using wooden sticks which are maybe one or two foot high to try and prop themselves up on and so they're giving themselves severe back problems and when we give them and they're hobbling around we give them a crutch it straightens them up up, and they have a lot more mobility and they're over the moon with that but something as simple as a crutch which we get for free on the NHS for even if you stub your toe near on they'll give you a crutch they've just got no access to over there Um, and it really is heartbreaking yeah you're absolutely right there thank you for sharing that Jack I'd like to just dig into your answer earlier in this conversation where you spoke about the really positive experience you've had with Ukrainians while delivering aid. Can you tell us a bit more about some of those people you've met and the relationships you've formed in your line of work? So we do have to be careful who we give our information out to um, because... As British humanitarian workers, I believe the current rate is $20,000 the Russian government will pay anyone who captures us or kills us. So we have to be very cautious with who we do give personal information to. Obviously, though, we do have some people's contact details and we do strike up um, good contacts. And a lot of our local contacts over there, um, again, they don't get paid to help us. But when we turn up to an area, we'll ask them to spread the word that we're coming uh, maybe a few hours before. And so we have a decent amount of people there. And these guys are often um, uh, former professionals in and community leaders, and they're fantastic with actually making sure the aid reaches the right people and helping us um, with a bit of crowd control. Because um, back in June in Kharkiv, we had over a thousand people queuing up for food, and we had to do two, um, we call it supermarket sweeps, where you run to drive to the nearest supermarket, um, sometimes 30, 40 minutes away. Um, literally sweep everything off the shelves into the trolleys, bring it back for the people. Um, I had to do that two, three times. Um, and it's very helpful then having people from the community to help calm the crowd. Because some of these guys, it was torrential rain at the time. We told them, come back in an hour, and they wouldn't get out the line where they literally have nothing. Uh, they were standing in water, going over their shoes. Um, storm drains weren't working. I'm um, getting absolutely soaked. And then when people start thinking there's not enough food for them... They start to get a bit irate. They start jostling. Our van was actually damaged at one point because someone tried to break into it via the side handle. And actually, the locals were great. Uh, we try; It helps that they speak English as well, and we do normally have at least one translator with us. Um, but it's good then to pacify people and say, look, we're bringing you more food. It's coming. Don't worry. Um, we just please remain calm and take shelter. Um, so, um, but yeah, we, as I said, we also have a very good relationship with... Um, uh, the Orthodox Church in Ukraine. Um, so myself, Fenton, and one of our team members, Steve, we actually got baptised into the Orthodox Church. Um, I actually got baptised back again April 2022, just before we went to Kharkiv, um, just as a bit of a to afford a bit of extra protection, and obviously clearly worked because um, Kharkiv was being bombed very badly at the time. Um, but we've formed very good relationships with the church, and they're very good at actually pointing us out to who who needs help, and that's one of the nice things with their churches at a great personal sacrifice the priests are putting themselves in a lot of danger to go and help people um like one priest you know he's very much a warrior priest he'll jump in his van um with a couple of other priests and they'll go right to the front line even to areas we're not allowed to go to as foreigners and give out aid under constant bombardment and drive back so there's been an immense effort from them as well and again the courage and the bravery of the ukrainian people is is overwhelming 
Yeah, Jack, and you've given us some pretty um, shocking examples of the dangerous situations you've you've been in during your aid missions. And also in your YouTube series, uh, Life on the Front Line, which is on our Telegraph YouTube channel, we see you and the team exploring areas that have just been hit by Russian attacks. I'm wondering, what would you say is the are the biggest dangers faced by those like yourself delivering aid in Ukraine? So I think when I, when I first went to Ukraine, um, you kind of have to accept you might die um, and accept that anything could happen except you might get injured. And I tell this to everyone who comes out to Ukraine with me. It's like, look, at the end of the day, you might die. And say you step on a landmine at the front or you get wounded, there's a good chance, even if we could stick a tourniquet on you, we won't be able to get you to hospital in time. And so you have to make peace with the danger before you head over, out to Ukraine. Um, <laughs> put put your faith in God, luck, um, whatever, um, to, to keep you safe out there. And it's best not to worry too much about the dangers. Um, obviously, be safe, be, be smart, um, do your recce's, do your um, research. But as I say, you can't help if you, a bomb falls on top of you or you step in a landmine. That's just bad luck, really. Um, but yeah, certainly... The dangers initially when we went in was landmines. So we were told um, if there's some long drives in Ukraine. So say you're on a six-hour drive and you pull over um, to relieve yourself. Um, you're told you've got to pee against the van. You don't walk off the road because it's all landmined. Um, and so very, very little privacy in that capacity. Um, the other element is saboteurs, as I said. So we have to be very careful um, and we normally have a few guys working security, usually the veterans, just to make sure no one's going to rush us with a knife or um, or even shoot at us. We've had cases where we've had local mafia turn up to try and inspect what we're doing and try and get a cut. We've um, It's it's bizarre. We even had a run-in with um, another humanitarian group. I say humanitarian group in inverted commas. It's a local mafia guy who um, supplied the aid for his area. Um, this was again about a year ago in um, Butrin Urban and he told us we were on his turf all aid has to go to him and he'll distribute it no one else is allowed to um, to which the priest we <laughs> told him where to go um, but obviously that is a concern because you don't know if people are going especially in a war zone people are going to return with guns um, again mafia is a big big problem over there some of them um, have done very well in um, helping their communities um, and pulling them together other ones have sort to profit off it um like we had a case in june last year where there was a fuel shortage across the country and no one could get any diesel every petrol station had run out so we ended up having to try and buy some um um i guess black market diesel um we agreed a price when we went there the price had doubled um so we said look we can only buy half of it because we needed it annoyingly if we could we would have walked away but this guy started getting nasty started taking pictures of our vehicles um started threatening threatening us and we were a little bit concerned about when he stormed off who he was going to come back with because this was just one man against a team of 10 quite big guys and we're thinking if he's being that aggressive he must you know it's what's, what's he planning to do so we just avoided that area for a bit going forwards but there's all sorts of things you don't think about um in the uk when you go over to help obviously the main danger is the the war and um um incidents related to that but there is a still a massive issue with um as I said, criminal activity. Um, the other problem you've also got is checkpoints. You have to be very careful driving through them because um, where the Ukrainian army is so big, some of the guys are very young, 18 years old, 
maybe have one month, two month army experience, put on the front line, given a rifle, and they man a checkpoint. So if you're driving too fast at that checkpoint, we've got friends who've been shot at. Um, I think even Fenton at one point got shot at as well. Um, cause his bag fell out the window of our van, so he went out looking for it in Dnipro after curfew because he had his passport in. Um, managed to find it, but as they were driving back to the base, someone started shooting at them, and they just got out of there. Um, as I said, there's a lot of um, lot of dangers over there, um, and it's said <laughs> in terms of what are the dangers, what aren't the dangers, if you know what I mean. Uh, even we had two guys go out in. Um, um, it was a group of them, but two guys in the group. They ate some food some of the locals gave them in Donetsk Oblast last July, and they had food poisoning for two weeks, um, just where the meat had worms in or something. And it's um, <laughs> everything's trying to kill you in Ukraine. If I could just jump in there, we've obviously heard the sad news in the last 48 hours or so that one humanitarian aid worker has lost their life from Britain and another, I believe, is still missing at this stage. I just wondered how connected you are with the other humanitarian agencies from Britain and elsewhere that are out there. So obviously we do have friends and contacts in different groups, but we're one of the few groups who haven't had any injuries or fatalities because while I can be a bit blasé sometimes, we do have quite strict rules, we do have quite strict safety precautions, and we have a very good relationship with the Ukrainian army um, when we do visit areas. Um, the it, It's very sad to hear what's happened with the two Brits. Um, again, Wagner Group released something um, saying they, um, they found one of the bodies and they've got their two passports, so I assume either the other chap who's still who's not been identified, he's either been captured and being treated horrifically or dead. And it's it does put things in perspective a bit. But they were captured in an area we were told by the Ukrainian army not to go into. Um, and again, I don't know about their personal situation, um, but I know we've been told if you go there, there's no, no help coming for you. You're kind of on your own. Um, and so it's, it, it's tough because we hear about things like there was one case with... Um, um, one humanitarian worker, he was driving the army around and they were laying landmines and then they drove back along the same route and they drove over one of their own landmines. So um, it's it, it's really tough in Ukraine. Um, it's you, it, the dangers are real, but you can be sensible and then it's just bad luck and obviously you can't predict everything. But if the Ukrainian army tell you not to go somewhere, you shouldn't go somewhere. And it was the same, I think, with the um, two Brits who were captured a few months ago where the Ukrainians told them not to drive through a checkpoint. They sort of said, no, I'm going through, and then got captured. Um, and I'm not saying I'm, I'm perfect or we've been um, 100% sensible over there. And I think a lot of people are driven by, and I admire their bravery and their passion um, for going into this area. Um, but I think when, when you're helping, you have to think or realise your mortality as well and not think you're invincible. Well, thank you, Jack, so much for all of that you've said today. Absolutely fascinating. And I know that there'll be many listeners who'll be thinking, how can I follow you? How can I potentially help, whether that be volunteering or, or by donating? So I just wondered whether you wanted to have a moment to, to talk to our listeners and, and let them know how, how they can help. Yeah, definitely. So um, if, if you want to follow us, just click the Vans Without Borders profile you see. Uh, speaking here on Twitter, and we have a crowdfunding um, page set up. So if you follow our account, you'll see the crowdfunding link in our description. And everything you give goes 100% on helping the Ukrainian people. As I said, no one gets a salary. 
Um, there's no silly first class tickets like some of the larger charities. Um, it's very much done on a budget and in the most efficient way to help the Ukrainian people as much as possible. And as I said, a lot of our guys, um, they've given up a lot in the UK to go over and help. Um, and so we would really appreciate any funding you can give. And it just makes our lives a lot easier. And it means we can help help more people over in Ukraine. Thank you, Jack. I'm sure our listeners will be glad to hear there's a way that they can help you after this incredibly emotive interview. Before we say goodbye to you this afternoon, is there anything that you would like to discuss that we haven't mentioned? I would just say, um, I think one of the things which which does annoy me with Ukraine is there's a lot of dissent, I think, particularly in the right wing of American politics, um, of people very anti-Zelensky, um, very anti-Ukraine, not knowing why people are helping. I'd just like to make two points. The first point is, if we now have to invest to help Ukraine, it will benefit us in the long term. Um, it will keep petrol prices down, keep gas prices down. And so it's better to take the pinch now than be in a worse recession or even a you know a world famine because food's not getting out of Ukraine. Um, that's the business argument. And the more emotional argument is, you know, have a look at actually what's going on the ground in Ukraine. Don't believe everything you're seeing online. A lot of it is Russian propaganda. Um, you've still got people who genuinely believe there's no war going on or it's a Ukrainian false flag. And I'd say, please do your research. Please talk to actual Ukrainians. There's probably many refugees in your country at the moment. Make an effort to actually educate yourself on the reality of what's happening in Ukraine. Um, because once you do, it will really open your eyes. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in contact directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. We're especially interested to hear where you're listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Robbie Nichols.